Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read a portion of the chapter. We read the entirety of it last week, um, but we realize that many of you were missing last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to pick up in verse 25 and following, I'm sorry, verse 24 and following through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to try to stay on task this morning. I actually have notes. Isn't that scary? So I actually have notes this morning, so I'm going to try to really press. When I have notes, it means that you're in trouble. (laughs) I usually um, am able to get them all in my Bible. I have a wide margin Bible. I put my own small notes in. But um, when I have to have two other little pagers, oh boy. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin reading verse 24 to the end of the chapter. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin... She is, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So that he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as Her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we thank you. And to continue our series, this is the final installment of the theology of singleness from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is installment number, th- is this three or four? I thought three. I've preached about five of them, though, in my head, so it's hard to limit these. All right, this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
Let me begin reading in verse 36 through 38 in this in the context in which we are talking about singleness as Paul presents it and therefore as God presents it here in his word. God's word says, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, and I'm going to use a different word there than virgin as through the rest of our reading. I'm going to use maiden or, or virgin daughter is what most uh, uh, margins will talk about. A virgin daughter um, is the reference there. Uh, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his maiden, uh, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no, no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his maiden, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. And so this morning we're going to talk about the parents' role. I really kind of would like this to be bumped till next week, because next week's Father's Day, and we're going to talk to dads today, uh, but not just to dads. But I'm also going to run the high risk of offending most every woman here. And that's okay, I'm fine with that. Um, because it's not my ideas. If they are my ideas, I may be a little bit nervous. But since they're God's ideas, I'm not very nervous at all. Uh, I'm more concerned. I'm concerned uh, for our ladies that might be uh, struggling with what you are about to hear from God's Word. Um, But we uh, recognize its authority, and hopefully if you do that in your life, uh, we are not trying to make anyone miserable. It's not God's plan. God has not determined evil for you, but good. And that's with regard not only for fathers, but for daughters. And particularly in this area of singleness and the area of authority, which is what we want to address here in this passage. And that's why we read the corollary, a corollary passage in Ephesians chapter 5 with regard to uh, the relationship between children and their father. And what it means, and I find nothing in God's Word that says that suddenly at a certain age, whether it was 16 or 18 or 21, that suddenly that command dissipates and disappears and is now no longer relevant to us. And so we're going to be incorporating a lot of God's Word into this message from really all the way back to Genesis and pressing forward into the other epistles um, into trying to get a proper view of this specific aspect of the theology of singleness. And in order to do this well, we're going to need a lot of help. So let's call upon the best help we've got available, and that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do thank you again. And as we look into your word this morning, our prayer and desire is that you might be at work in our hearts through your word by your spirit. And Lord, we all have our own notions, and they are of our own making. And we know that the imaginations of the heart of man are evil all his days. And so it is incumbent upon us this morning to conform ourselves to your thinking, to your ideas. And Lord, we desperately need your help in that. And I pray you might guard this time from error and opinion, that it might be your truth from your word, And Lord, that we might not look about for reasons to ignore it, for excuses to disobey you, but that we would rather lay hold of this and enjoy its purpose, which is 
our good and not evil. Lord, we again commit ourselves to you this day as we look into your word. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come into this final passage, really, it's going to talk about singleness here. Uh, and we have shifted gears now from the single person to another individual. And some have made this reading sound like it's someone who is engaged and is preparing to marry. And what do I do now? I've already made a kind of a commitment. And that is possible here as an application that we have an engaged person that says, well, should I follow through with this marriage or should I um, not do that? Um, but that's really uh, stretching several uh, aspects of this passage. Uh, the one seems to imply that there is going to be an ongoing relationship even if the decision is not to marry. And so I prefer to take what is the standard approach to this passage, to these verses that we're talking about a father dealing with his maiden daughters, that is their, his unmarried daughters. And uh, they use the word virgin there, and this is the same word used of Mary, prior to um, uh, when she's approached by the angels with regard to uh, bring forth the Christ child, and uh, that she is the Virgin Mary. It's not necessarily just a, a statement referring to uh, her sexual purity, but it's also a statement of her age. This is a young lady. And so uh, we obviously see from the passage here that we're not confined to just a young age, uh, in fact, uh, one of the very pointed statements is about her aging under his authority. And so let's take a look at this a little bit, and we're going to try to bring it into our theology of singleness and to recognize what singleness maybe is not with reference specifically to our young ladies. And uh, sorry, guys, this isn't really a lot for you unless you're a dad or going to be a dad, and, and uh, I've got a few young dads here with daughters. Listen in. Okay, I got two or three of you. Um, but even us old dads, and, and I'm getting to be one of those I hear, um, uh, have that responsibility. But I am going to widen this net today extensively uh, to include all of our men in this assembly uh, with regard to our relationship to uh, our maidens in our church. And so we're going to look at that and see biblical evidence of it. So let's start off with the scripture before us, and that is um, we have now a question. A man, uh, is he wrong in pressing or uh, engaging his daughter for marriage? Uh, is, is that an improper uh, thing to do uh, for him to uh, look for a spouse for his daughter, for a husband? Uh, is this improper? And that it is not about a sexual act that is being referred to, that he is acting uh, improperly toward her as though he's coming on to her, that kind of, that's really not what's being communicated here, but rather, um, is it proper for me to be looking for a husband for my daughter, for my young maiden daughter or older maiden daughter? Is it, is, is that, a, am I behaving improperly by involving ourselves in that? And again, this is tied into some of the other passages that tell us that it's not improper to be married. It is not sin to be married. 
And therefore, Paul, in uh, conformity with that theme, with that principle, says, if it's not a sin to be married, neither, Dad, is a sin for you to be engaged in the process of having your daughters married to someone. And it's okay to be actively involved in that. And, and unfortunately, in our society, we have abandoned the, this uh, aspect of the active involvement of dad in his daughter's lives of the selection process of a spouse. In fact, I would contend that most dads are absolutely vacant when it comes to this responsibility, and it shows. It shows horribly in our society and I would contend that uh, it is one area that, I, that we had some interesting statements in India with regard to this uh, very thing. Uh, and of course, their, their contention is the reason they don't have divorces like we have divorces, not they don't have any, but they don't have them like we have, 50%, is because dad picks who's to marry who. And if dad's not around, uncle does. If uncle's not around, brother does. And it goes right down the chain of command. And the men are responsible for lining these up. Now, there are some other elements, certainly, in their culture. It is very much frowned upon, divorce, much different than in our culture here, where we've readily accepted it now as just a fact of nature. You don't even have to have a reason to get divorced anymore. I just, I'm not happy. Well, you're not going to be happy divorced either. Um, that's not the solution to your unhappiness. It is Jesus Christ is the solution to this problem. Um, but there is one aspect of their culture that they have sustained um, there where they still have arranged marriages. And we were shocked by that. The Archuletas, I remember poor Chris was sitting there just having this conversation with the, one of the men, young men there and saying, I'm going to be married in a few months. And, and uh, Chris very innocently, very Americanly says, oh, you know, what's she like? And the... Young man, I don't know. I've never met her. And I think Chris just stood there and looked at him. What do you mean you haven't met her? Well, my parents arranged this, and I haven't met her yet. And I'll meet her, and I'm gonna when I go home after this break, I'm gonna meet her, and we're gonna be married in a couple of months. And you say, can that work? Yes. Oh, yes. When it's done well. Now, does that mean that every Indian couple is joyously excited about their weddings? No. Does that mean they're all happily married? No. Um, but the, they're, because there's still a choice and there's still an investment that needs to be made. But we see a biblical pattern that it is uh, incumbent upon dad to be actively involved in this process. And I want you to take you back to uh, Abraham, who recognized this responsibility, not only for his daughters, but for his sons. So this isn't just about daughters, um, who said, you know what, I'm going to get the right kind of wife for my son Isaac, and that's going to require uh, some work, and I'm not really up to travel. Remember, he was an old man, really old. He was old when he had the guy. Now the guy is 40 years old and needs a wife, and so the guy... Adam's, or Adam, Abraham's 140 years old. He's not going to travel back to Ur. So he sends his, his uh, most trusted servant to go 
take care of that. He has specific responsibilities upon him. And the trusted servant realizes this is a very, very heavy weight my master has put on my shoulders. He has entrusted with me with one of the fundamental responsibilities of fatherhood. For his one and only son of heir. I know there's Ishmael there as well, but he was off the scene by then. And so Gehazi comes up to this, this, the servant comes up to this responsibility and he just cries out to God, Oh Lord, help me! This is way over my head. And he says, I need your help. I need you to direct me to the right girl. So let's just lay this out there. I'm going to show up. And if some girl shows up and is willing to uh, not only give me water, but water all the camels. Um, and if she lets me go to her house right then, that'll be my sign. that you, That's the one. He recognized the responsibility. He turned it over and says, God, I need your help in this. And I want to begin, dads, as saying, while I... Place the responsibility clearly on your shoulders because God does. You are not unequipped for this. Uh, God has granted you the authority. He has determined that. Whether you've ever exercised it in your life, in your marriage or in your family um, is something you need to deal with with God. But He is willing to engage Himself on your behalf when you choose to say, I will engage myself in my children's lives in this heavy responsibility. Yesterday I got to participate in a 50th wedding anniversary by the renewal vows for Paul and Jenny Morton. And one aspect uh, that I find in God's Word, one of the things I said was that I can't find anywhere in God's Word where the Bible celebrates longevity of marriage. You can't find it. And the reason being is because God expects it to last the rest of your life. But you will not find anywhere in God's Word where they're going to celebrate 50 years or 100 years or any number of years of being married. And so we go back to the beginning of the marriage, not the 50-year mark, and ask 50-year-old, 60, 80-year-olds, you know, what was the key to being happily married? Uh, the key to being happily married, um, it didn't happen at the 20th year or the 30th year or the 40th year or the 50th year. It happened before year one. It happened before the wedding. The key was that you are going to commit yourself to the right person. Fundamental. You're going to commit yourself to the right person. And here's the testimony that Paul Morton shared. Uh, and he invited everybody he knew. I mean, he goes, he's got a, he's got a McDonald's group and he's got a village inn group and he's got a chess club and a stamp club and a diabetes club. And um, and he invited them all. And the place was full. They came. And he, he came to me and he said, Pastor, okay. And we were sitting in the back room waiting to go out and start the service. He says, I can't believe they came. He says, you've got an atheist out there. You've got Jewish people out there. You've got, you got agnostics out there. You got this. I don't think he's ever been to church, that guy. And, and he's like, give him the gospel. And so we did. Yeah, but... Uh, Here's his testimony. He said, anyone wants to know the secret of living long, it's I married a woman who shared my faith. And we have served God all our days together. And that's brought the peace, that's brought the joy, that's brought the endurance to our relationship that it's not just because 
because um, we're just good at this or because um, I call her boss every now and then, uh, <laughs> but, which he does. Um, but rather it's because of their mutual desire to serve God. And that decision was made prior to year one, prior to the wedding. That was the key to a happy marriage. And dads, you have, a, you have culpability here. You have a responsibility to your children to assist them in that process. We usually relegate matchmaking to the women. Okay, and we all want the Yulagentas running around. Um, we're going to match people up. Um, again, usurping someone else's role. This is the role of dad. In God's word, I find this not to be the role of the women, but of the men. In fact, on the few occasions that women were used in that regard, um, it was evil. And if you remember in Solomon's day, Solomon's brother, brother, stepbrother, no, half-brother, there we go, Solomon's half-brother goes to Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, and says, go talk to your son because I want so-and-so for my wife who was one of the former wives of David. And Bathsheba does that, and Solomon rakes her over the coal and says, What are you doing, Mom? Don't you know that if he marries her, that he has a greater right or claim to the throne? Don't you see through this? This isn't about love. And so every time that, that those gals started to butt in to this singular responsibility upon dad, we find problems. And we have a godly gal, Rebecca, that goes to Isaac and says, let's not let our... Or I'm sorry, got the wrong ones again. Sarah, going to Abraham, I don't want my son to marry any of these women around here. And she followed the chain of command. She went to her husband and said, please don't let this happen. So I'm not saying that, gals, you have no wisdom there, but it is a matter of recognizing who has that authority. Now, we come to this passage and we find the statement, now, dads, you have this responsibility laying on your shoulders and you want to do it. And it's not a cultural one because it goes all the way back. It permeates cultures. Uh, Corinth is not Jewish culture. It is Roman. Um, and, and we see it front to back in our Bible, uh, consistently presented in this fashion. And the responsibility is on you. What are you going to do now? You have this theology of singleness, but you've been actively engaged in looking for a, a, da- a husband for your daughter. Are, are you behaving improperly? And Paul's instruction to you, like his instruction to the single people, is that if you're going to follow through with that. You're not sinning by doing this. By marrying your daughters off, you're not sinning against them or against God. But your preferences need to be what God's preferences are. And it's kind of interesting that uh, Paul makes this statement. It says, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let him marry. Go ahead and, and get that spouse and marry her off. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with it? Well, it's the recognition that once she's past her flower of her youth, once she's past this uh, 
childbearing age and therefore desirability, of course, in that culture would have diminished greatly. So once she's pressing into those 30s and 40s um, and, and there's going to be fewer and fewer suitors out there, a dad has to make a decision. Am I prepared to accept the authority responsibility for my daughter the rest of her days or do I not want to accept that role and I'm going to find her a husband and transfer that responsibility over her to him? And suddenly you realize exactly why most of our ladies here are going to be offended. Pastor, you make it sound like we should always be under a man's authority. And that is exactly the point. We are living a generation almost from the effects of the women's liberation movement. And it has inundated our thinking so that we are totally off base in terms of what God's design is for the family and for the roles that we play as males and females um, in that society. And uh, because of that, it has infiltrated the church. Most pastors can't preach this kind of a sermon without having people get up and walk out or come slap them or leave or get upset. And if you, if you want to do any of that, you're welcome to it. I'm okay with that um, because you slap me and it's not my message. but I would appreciate it because then I'll know where your heart's at between you and God. Um, I remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you, God's instruction is not to do evil in your life, but good. The world has communicated to us that being under authority is horrible, and it's miserable, and it's self-limiting, and um, it's oppressive. And I would contend with you the only time that being under authority is oppressive is if the one you are under authority to is an oppressor. The fact is, is that what God's Word tells us, again, from cover to cover, is that all of us are supposed to be under God's authority. And immediately we go, well, yeah, that's great because He's benevolent, He's good, He's loving. He desires that. And so he desires to do good for me. And so, yeah, I want to follow his word and I want to do what he tells me. I want to give his direction. I mean, he provides. He's saved me. He's delivering me. He's done all this good for me. And so, yeah, I'm going to follow. I'm going to submit myself and be under his authority. We go into a book like Ephesians and we find this instruction of submit to one another. Oh, what does that mean? Okay, in the church I have to be submissive to one another? Yes, we have to be submissive to one another. And then immediately after that, we have this further command, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So you readily say, I am willing to submit myself to the authority of God, and I want to be under His authority, and do you call yourself oppressed? Do you call, consider yourself um Hemmed in? Are your options limited? Well now, if you are willing to put yourself under the authority of your husband as you have done to the Lord, you're not going to be oppressed. 
You're not going to be hemmed in. You're not going to be gasping as if you have no air to breathe. For a loving husband will not allow that circumstance to happen in your life. And of course, in preparation for yesterday's wedding, <laughs> and I've decided it's the only kind of wedding I'm going to do anymore, it's 50 anniversaries. It was a lot of fun. But my wife and I had some discussions, and uh, she asked me a question about Abraham. And the question was, and I actually listened. Guys, just a clue there. The question was, it says that Abraham believed God and God credited him for righteousness. And the thing that Abraham believed God about was that God was going to give him a son. So if Abraham believed God, why did he listen to his wife and take Hagar? And the problem was, his wife didn't believe God. She laughed. Because she didn't believe God, she came up with her own idea. And her own idea is, hey, I got this Hagar, this Egyptian handmaiden, um, and we'll just figure out our own way of doing what God's promises. We'll fulfill God's promises our way instead of waiting on God to do it His way, which is miraculous and wow. Instead, we're going to do it our way, which is pretty natural and Okay? Disgusting. But here is Abraham, a man who loves his wife and believes God. Who listened to his wife's idea. Even though he knew that's not what God meant. And he conceded to her. And this is the danger of marriedness for men. Is that we love our wives. And usually that means we concede to her lack of faith. In various areas. Whether it's regard to children. As Abraham and Sarai, Abram and Sarai, or whatever area. Yeah, we saw last Sunday night Adam saying the truth. The woman you gave me, she brought it to me and I ate it. He wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. You know what Adam's problem was? He loved his wife. And he knew it was wrong. And he knew it would be miserable. He knew it would be have horrific results. But he took and ate it. So yes, ladies, even uh, under a loving husband, you can convince him to do wrong. To do what is not in his heart to do. Contrary to God's leading in his life. And so... We recognize that this authority on the wives, and we recognize the authority in the home with dad. And the question is, at what point does a woman not have any authority in her life? Male authority. And I come to passages like this, and my conclusion has to be that I don't find anywhere in God's Word where there is a liberty to 
go out into society not under the watchful, caring, loving authority of a male in your life. And we find this to be the case time and again. And so Paul says, listen, if you're not willing to accept the role of the authority for her all the rest of her days, because she's getting past the age where anyone's interested in marrying her, if you're not willing to carry that authority as dad, and to carry that role in her life the rest of her days, then go ahead and get her a husband so that she'll be under the husband's authority and make that happen. But if not, what would be best is if you were willing to carry that authority the rest of your days. If you are steadfast in your heart, he says in verse 33, if dad is steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, there isn't anything that would prevent him from from fulfilling that responsibility to his adult daughter, if he is steadfast and if he is willing to support her and he has the capacity to do so and and the, the strength physically to do so, and he is determined in his heart that he will keep her, he does well. I say it doesn't sound like she has any choice in this matter. She does. She has a choice either to submit to the godly authorities in her life or to rebel. The same decision that we have in relationship to God, our Father. We have a, a choice. He says, This is my way. And He has given us His commands. And he doesn't force us to obey him. But he does cause us to live the consequences of those choices. You rebel, you get punished. You go into idolatry, here's judgment. And so, yes, you can exert your will and part of the curse on you is that you have an innate desire to rebel against that male authority in your life. And so it's no surprise that in society uh, where there is godlessness, that there is also this equal desire to usurp male responsibility and authority in society. It's, it's no surprise. We see it right there in Genesis. We saw it last week, Sunday night, in that account of the origins of sin. And so it's naturally in you, ladies, I don't deny that. In fact, neither should you. And having recognized that, we recognize that that is natural man and not the spiritual man in you, woman. That is your natural state, is to buck male authority in your life, to override it, to to plow right through it. But it is the spiritual woman who will recognize those authorities as given to her by God in which she can more freely function. Not with less freedom, but more freedom. Because now she can operate and she has her boundaries. And once you know your boundaries and you know that you are free to operate in this circle and there's the boundaries right out there, oh, the liberty it gives you. That when some guy comes up and wants to chat you up, you say, go talk to my dad or my brother, or my uncle, or pastor. Because we've gotten to that point where the males are so weak and so uninvolved 
that it falls upon other males in society like myself. Oh, the liberty of it. Don't you remember the liberty that you have once you trust Christ as your Savior? That's the kind of liberty, ladies, you have once you surrender yourself to the authority of that man that God has put in your life. And that's why when we come to the books of like Titus and Timothy, Paul talking to young pastors says, listen, you have a responsibility not only for your family, you have a responsibility not only to teach God's word, but you have a responsibility in the care and oversight of these groups of people and the specific ones they mention. Guess who? Young widows and old widows. The single ladies in the church, you have a specific responsibility for their oversight. To care for them. To make sure that they're, not only that they're, they're got a house to live in, but you, to provide for them that authority that sets those boundaries to liberate them from all of these other things that they shouldn't have to be concerned about. My daughters don't have to worry about guys because they know that every one of them has got to stand before me before he bothers very much. Ten minutes with her. They want to spend ten minutes alone with her? You better come talk to me. And they can engage. Does that mean that they're, you know, huddled in my in a closet in my house to be guarded from all men? No. They have liberty. Because now they don't have to worry about whether they're going to date this guy or not. Because that's something I'm going to decide. And they can have those relationships without having to worry about where's this relationship going. Because dad's there. I haven't always asserted myself as much as I am of late. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old. But it's time we understood this role. Now, we have a couple of problems. Number one, we don't have men doing their job. We don't have dads doing the work of dads. And that creates a vacuum. And let me share with you, when there's a vacuum of righteousness, what will suck in its place is sin. And so our society glorifies the liberated woman, do we find her happy? Do we find her fulfilled? Do we find her at peace? No. And so we find this principle that there is authority that God has ordained. And that authority is not to be exercised as an ogre, as an oppressor, but rather in a loving manner that provides the boundaries of protection around the ladies of all ages within our church that gives them the liberty to move and function within society. This is not treating her as a second-class citizen, this is rather cherishing them the way they ought to be treated. 
This is not being disrespectful to them as the Muslims do, but rather this is guarding her. Because we know what's in the hearts of men, don't we, dads? Because it's been in our heart. We know what men are capable of. We know the lies that they will tell. We know the the schemes and the manipulations they will use. And so, when we exert our authority over the women in our lives that God has placed under our authority, it is not to inhibit them, but to liberate them. It is not to cage them, but to guard them. Not for our enjoyment, but for their own. That they can work and move and, and, and relate within society in a relaxed manner because they know that they have protection. They have one that is watching over them, that has their interests in mind and is knowledgeable of the dangers that are out there. My time is drawing near to a close. I want to give a couple of examples. In David's family, there was a lot of turmoil. When you have the number of wives he had and the number of children that they had, uh, you expected. And one of his sons fell in love, thought, really just lust, with one of his daughters. And pursued her relentlessly. And finally, one of his buddies says, why don't you just pretend to be sick and ask her to come take care of you? Which he did. And she dutifully came. And in that setting, he raped her. Pretty so far, really bad. But you see, she was not friendless. She had a brother. Her full brother, not a half-brother. Her name was Absalom. Whatever we think about Absalom's later rebellion against his father, Absalom took her in and said, from now on, since Dad isn't doing his job of protecting you, I'll do it as your brother. And he says, you're going to stay the rest of your life in my house under my guard. And yes, it wasn't long before Absalom found a good reason to slay his half-brother that raped his wife, his sister. Because David wasn't doing his job of guarding his daughters. It fell to the next one who loved her. And Absalom picked up that responsibility And out of all the motivations of Absalom's rebellion against David, I still go back to that event. That there was a bitterness in his life, in his heart, against his own father because of what transpired with his sister. And it's no mistake that when Absalom usurps the throne, one of the first things he does is he goes in and he takes his father's wives and sleeps with them in public in Jerusalem. 
what was he saying to dad? You don't protect the one I love. I'm going to do injury to the ones you love. Ladies, the principle is clear. Absalom, I'm not excusing his rebellion and excusing his act against David. But this is the turmoil that came into David's life because of his own sin. That he readily confessed before God, was forgiven of, but there were consequences. And these are among them. But, but we find this principle that here's this violated woman who, who wants her now. Well, Absalom steps up to the plate and says, you will fall under my protection. You will live in my house and you will be guarded the rest of your days. And you will be cared for and you will be loved here in this house. And this is what every male in who has the responsibility for a wife, every male's responsibility for a daughter, every pastor who has ladies in his church and the widows that are there and the, and the deacons have responsibility to say, you will be guarded. You will be protected. You will be loved. You will not be overlooked. You will be cared for. You are not friendless. And there is, within that context, a great sigh of relief. This isn't oppression. This is honor. This is what it means to treat your daughters honorably. To say, in the steadfastness of my heart, power over my will, I'll keep my maidens. If she desires after marriage for what is not the best, for what is good, for marriage is not an evil, she does well. If she desires it, I'll engage in that. The idea of women moving about in society outside of the protection of an authoritative male is really very foreign to God's Word. Our call today is for men who will stand up and be men, but we cannot impose that at this point. But we must present ourselves to say, I am willing to fulfill my role as dad. I'm willing to fulfill my role as brother. I'm willing to fulfill my role as pastor. I'm willing to fulfill that role as husband to guard and protect you if you'll have me. Somebody say, that doesn't sound very assertive. Oh, it is. It's as assertive as God is. I will be your Lord if you'll have me. If you'll have me. If you accept me as your Savior and Lord, I will be that and all of that. All the protection, all the provision, all the promises that are kept and secured because we've submitted ourselves to Christ. 
And so we conclude in verse 40. She is happier if she remains as she is. According to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God, that the preference needs to be We not view singleness as the disease, but rather as healthy and godly and to be used of God to His glory. And to the fathers, the brothers perhaps of need, to the uncles, to the pastors or deacons of the unmarried women, my challenge to you is you step up and recognize that while society may not have placed this responsibility on your shoulders at this day and age, God still has. Fulfill your role. That your women folk might have the joy of living protected, free life under your supervision. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word this morning.